Turn off the Nintendo. It's time for dinner. I don't know what I don't know what accent I'm going for here. Hey there, Internet. I'm Annie. I'm Kit. And I'm Mac. And this is I Will Fight You, a podcast where we've been turning opinions into stone-cold facts since 1986. Today's stone-cold fact, Will Riker and Han Solo represent the most misunderstood character archetype in the history of fiction. And we don't mean misunderstood like all the people in Marvel fandom keep saying that, oh, Loki's so misunderstood. We mean like literally people don't understand how this character archetype works. Which is why you get really bad examples sometimes of people trying to play towards that character archetype and failing. They just come out real gross. This is something we affectionately call the Riker Solo, and we are going to explain this to you today. Unfortunately, we are not going to be doing something like our previous two episodes, which have been watching a movie and telling you about our thesis about the movie. This one's a bit more freeform, so uh, bear with us a little here, folks. We have topics. We have a list of topics. Let's start out with a quick rundown of our two characters that we are talking about here. Uh, Han Solo's a little easier and a bit more ubiquitous, so let's start with him. Everybody knows who Han Solo is, because the only people who haven't seen Star Wars are the people who were in the Star Wars. They lived them. They lived the Star Wars. And probably, honestly, someone who hasn't seen it is probably also not listening to I Will Fight You. Han Solo is a scoundrel. He's a scruffy nerf herder. He is also a quote-unquote smuggler of contraband, which in all likelihood means that he's somebody's weed guy. Ah, he's totally somebody's weed guy. He pulls up in his janky old car with his, like, weird tall hairy friend in the passenger seat and tosses you a bag of what turns out to be space oregano. And by the time you've opened the bag and figured that out, he's already down the street in his clunky old truck. He's pressed his foot to the pedal and it's just zooming off as fast as it can go cloud of black smoke it breaks down about halfway down the block and he gets out and he screams push push han solo is practically our archetypical smug asshole with a heart of gold he's also the third member of our little trio in the star wars and yes we're talking about the star wars we're not don't speak about the first three episodes to my face don't do it so I'm currently in a Star Wars tabletop game where we're covering the first three episodes. Don't. Don't do that. Not to me. Not to my face. Not on this, the day of my daughter's wedding. Who's your daughter in this equation? Uh, probably my Calico? Ica? Han Solo is, uh, is the third member of our trio, as previously said, uh, along with Luke, Sk- Luke Skywalker and Leia Organa. Luke Skywalker and Leia Organa. I I have watched the Star Wars, I promise you. Look, man, it's daylight savings time. None of us are operating on an adequate amount of sleep, just so you know. I'm not used to this shit. I'm from Indiana. We didn't have to do this. Until 2005, when Governor Mitch Daniels was a jerk. Han Solo works for Jabba the Hutt. Ish. Ish. He's some sort of smuggler. He works for people, and he smuggles goods, and he has a table that plays space claymation chess. And he says a few times that he is not here for your rebellion. But he sticks around anyway because he's totally in love with Leia. And then they have a really awful baby. And proceed to adopt every young person who needs guidance that they come across in the next 30 years. Yeah, they do that too. You know, they just open a closet and young abandoned children just fall out. It's in the same way that some people collect cats. 
And then the thing happens to Han Solo because Harrison Ford didn't want to do any more of these movies. You know, I'm surprised they hung on for so long. He didn't want to be in Return of the Jedi. He was talking about dodging out an empire. That's actually why they decided to freeze Han and Carbonite. And then they came up with the money. They got the money and he was like, all right, fine. I guess I'll be in this incredible movie series. It's all dumb as hell, but we all love it. They had to improvise most of their dialogue because the screenplay was that bad. How the hell did we get Star Wars out of all that shit? Marsha Lucas is how that happened. Oh, bless her heart. Yeah, Han Solo is, um, he's such a well-known character that it's actually kind of difficult to explain him theoretically to someone who's never heard of him. He is the archetypal, morally gray character with a heart of gold who comes through for the hero at the last minute. And he's snarky. And he's snarky. And he falls in love with Leia, who is a princess. So there's a whole thing there. But, um, William T. Riker. He's a bit more complicated. And let's face it, as ubiquitous as Star Trek is, the nuances of it escape people a lot. People know Star Trek. They know Captain Kirk. They know Spock. They, to a lesser degree, they'll know things like Captain Picard. They get the feeling they're supposed to dislike Janeway. For no good goddamn reason. So, like, as someone who hadn't really watched Star Trek much, I knew who Riker was. I even had an action figure of him at one point. But I don't recall ever actually seeing a full episode of The Next Generation. Wait, at one point, what happened to your Riker figure? Uh, it's back at home right now. Oh, okay. <laughs> you, you were really concerned there. Yeah, she got that at a covered bridge festival. That thing's great. I found it in a box of old porn magazines at that festival. Why were you digging through a box of old porn magazines? Well, it was it was at the place where they had a bunch of porn magazines. Yeah, they had a bunch of porn magazines, but that was in a box of, like, random shit along with some other action figures. It was just next to the porn magazines. It was tangential to the porn magazines, exactly. Why were you at the part of the festival that sold the porn magazines? You go to the whole festival when you go to the festival. Anyway, Mac, you were talking about Riker. Uh, so my knowledge of Riker came in like three things. And that was one, he's charming. Two, he plays trombone. And three, he stands with like his elbow forward and he kind of leans on his fist. And that was my knowledge of Riker. You're missing the most important part. What's the most important part? He's got a beard. He got a beard starting in season two. And also uh, Jonathan Frakes, who plays Riker, is like six foot four and is incapable of sitting down in a chair properly. So he's like swings his leg over the back and then sits down. And then when he gets up, he does the same thing in reverse. It's amazing. In, in recent years, I've watched a lot more uh, Deep Space Nine than I have Next Gen, and it has summarily replaced most of my Star Trek memories in my heart. Kit, I think you're the most well-versed among us to take on William T. Riker. Oh, God, yeah, I marathoned all seven seasons of TNG this summer. Just for fun? Yeah, just for shiggles. Will Riker is the first officer of the Enterprise D and later the Enterprise E and later even than that, the captain of the Titan. But we don't talk about Star Trek Nemesis. Riker, I believe, exists in the show because I don't have any proof of this. I just looking at the way the show is constructed. Riker exists in the show because a lot of housewives watched the original Star Trek and a lot of housewives really liked William Shatner as Captain Kirk. But in TNG, they had an older guy as the captain who turned out to still be really popular with the housewives. But initially they threw in this like younger baby faced first officer who later grew a beard and became awesome to fill the sort of Captain Kirk role in the crew. Riker is a character who is notable for having lots of episodes where he sleeps with hot alien babes uh, or goes to vacation planets to sleep with lots of hot alien babes. He's like the sex pot. He's the male sex pot of the show, as far as I remember. He's, he's the show's bicycle. And there's also some really, really good episodes where he goes to things like, uh, you know, he temporarily has to take over command of the ship. 
or he goes to a Klingon ship to serve as their first officer for a while, or he is frequently undercover and is an alien and fucks up and has to be rescued while he's undercover as an alien in these uh, pre-warp civilizations where you can't violate the prime directive. Or he gets in one of those ubiquitous transporter accidents and then there are two Rikers. Yeah, that, that was great. So Kit, Kit, quick question for you. Yeah. If Riker was a woman, how fast would you be on that? You know what? I wouldn't be on that because I would simply faint in her presence. I would be incapable of dealing with that. But I really like Riker as a character because Riker really defies expectation. But we'll get into that later. The point remains is that, yeah, Riker is this character who a lot of his his defining character trait in the show is sleeps with a lot of alien ladies. But also, like, he plays the trombone and he's quite well read and... He's funny and he has great relationships with a lot of the other characters on the show. And he grew a beard in season two and suddenly the show was awesome because beards are magic. Yeah, you can actually track the dramatic improvement of the show between seasons by whether or not Riker has a beard. You can tell at a glance if this is like a good episode or not. Anyway, let's move on. So we've kind of talked around this, but these characters, uh, as different as they are, actually kind of occupy the same space in geek culture. They sort of fit into the same archetype. That archetype being the suave, cool ladies' man, possibly in space. Right. We're, we're kind of going to focus here on how these guys tend to relate to female characters and how that defines them. Geek culture has a tendency to latch on to any character that has any kind of romantic success with women and inflate that part of their character until it becomes the entirety of their character, probably because for the longest time, a lot of geek men were not so lucky with the ladies. And so they sort of saw this character as an ideal, uh, something that they aspired to be, but were not currently. Because what Han Solo is typically portrayed as is he's portrayed as a as a smashing lady killer, is the as sort of like science fiction scruffy James Bond. And it feeds into that sort of idea of the guy who's not necessarily the lead, but his ability to be sort of counterculture, sort of against the grain, to not be in the spotlight, to not be the main character, but to be the one that is smoldering with sexual energy that all the women want to get with. Although that's mostly just Harrison Ford being Harrison Ford. I don't think he was written it like that. Oh, mercy, is it? I know I know a lot of women who, if they had a time machine... They would not go back in time and kill Hitler. They would go back in time and get with young Harrison Ford. Have you seen that little pout? He's got an actual smolder. The same is true for Riker. Part of that is just Jonathan Frakes, but a lot of that is him written to be the housewife attractor in the show. And as a result, they have him, you know, despite the fact that he's got this long-standing thing with the ship's counselor, Deanna Troy, he has all the alien romance storylines, again, as the housewife attractor. So he will fall in love with some girl from some planet or some genderless alien from some other planet, which was kind of a neat storyline that sort of fell flat near the end. And as a result, again, the young guys watching the show sort of inflated this uh, this character type of his and made it into sort of a, a frat boy version of Riker that's not actually all that accurate. And I want to be clear, Riker is kind of a moron in that respect. He once brought an orgasm computer game on board that like got the whole crew addicted to it in an episode that predicted the rise of Candy Crush. But for the most part, that's not actually his character. So how well do these characters actually fit into this archetype? The answer is... Not so much. For example, despite Harrison Ford's smoldering sexual energy every minute he's on screen, Han Solo is not actually all that openly sexual a character. I think, I'm pretty sure in the original trilogy, the only woman he shows any interest in whatsoever is Leia, probably because Leia is the only female character of any significance in the movies. But Han Solo is also kind of like a easily panicked weirdo 
Here's the thing about Han Solo. First off, he always sounds a bit like a romance character to me in sort of how he relates to women, but look, this incredible dork has been living alone in his freaking bachelor pad for years with his best friend, a giant hairy rug. He is bad at smuggling. He has a fast ship, but he is real bad at smuggling. He never has, quote unquote, the money. He's real bad at lying. He's always like, oh no, this is, this is a misunderstanding. You don't, don't, don't worry about it. Uh, pew pew. He has no sense of planning. He seems cool, but at like the first second, he just sort of falls apart into being this complete dork. It's incredible. He is such a dork. He's the kind of guy who responds to a perfectly reasonable request with, I'll see you in hell. He's a weirdo who talks to his car. And then we get to his relationship with Leia, which by all accounts, like the way that people talk about Han Solo, you would think what his relationship with Leia is something on the lines of like, hey, baby, I don't need you. I'm an asshole. And she's like, oh, my God, take me. But that's not how it is at all. Yeah. Actually, he's the needier one because she's always talking in Empire. She's always talking about how the rebellion needs him. And he's like, well, how about you say that you need me and then I'll stay. Do you like me? I have a little note here that says, yes, no, maybe. Oh my god. Do you like me? Please. Please say you like me. He has hard eyes every time he looks at her. And she's just constantly ordering him around and yelling at him. It's magnificent. And here's the thing about his romantic arc. It's like, not only is he just a completely needy goober, but... Also, Han Solo has a tremendous amount of respect for Leia. We have to assume that this extends to a respect for other women. We don't actually see him interact with any other women. Again, there really aren't any. Until, at, at least until Rey in Force Awakens. Right, we can at least try and make that extension. But Han Solo acts with a tremendous amount of respect for Leia. He's bothered initially by her bossiness, not necessarily by her being a woman and bossing him around. He never seems like his masculinity is threatened, nor does he ever act on that impulse. He's more interested in her needing him, her wanting him, her admitting that she has feelings for him. But he's never a sexually aggressive character in that regard. Like in the early parts on Hoth, he's more like, he's like a romance character. He's Mr. Darcy-esque. Oh my god, is he? I mean, the thing is that I feel like when I'm when I'm watching these movies, it feels like Leia is not the prize for Han Solo. Han Solo was the prize for Leia. Basically, yeah. And then you get to like these bits in Return of the Jedi where Luke finds out that uh, he and Leia are siblings and Han doesn't quite get this, but he's like, you love, you love Luke. Of course I do. And his first response is this little broken puppy dog face and I won't get in your way. He doesn't call her awful names for leading him on. He basically just says, I want you to be happy. I respect you. I'm just going to go listen to eight tricks in my Millennium Falcon. Lovers! And another thing about Return of the Jedi is that you've got Leia being the most damsel in distress she's been since the first movie. And even then she wasn't that to a certain degree. In that stupid bikini, the metal bikini. I want to point out that Han Solo never actually sees her in that outfit. I'm sure by the time his eyesight returned, she had already bundled herself up in somebody else's jacket and was like covered in Jabba's blood. And I'm sure if he had seen her in that outfit, he would have been infuriated that somebody forced the woman he loved to wear that stupid thing. And at no point does he ever attempt to like counterdict her, her command or anything. He never undermines her. He's a romantic hero. He is devoted to uh, the woman that he loves. 
He is patient. He recognizes that she has feelings for him because he actually understands her emotionally. And if she denies that and turns him into a flat out no, picks someone else, he says, okay. So guys, learn something from this. He's so good. That's why he's dreamy. Also the smolder. Again, that's 100% Harrison Ford. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. So I guess what we learned from this is that uh, Harrison Ford is a character for women, not for men. That's what it feels like to me. He feels like a very feminist character to me. And to see that sort of get pushed around into just this sort of lazy pastiche of roguish heroic archetype just kind of feels like a shame to me, I guess. Like explicitly making this character not for women, even though he respects them and wants to love them and support them. Annie, you're get you're kind of you're kind of losing yourself in this a little bit and smolder. Okay, I think we're done with Han Solo. So now to Riker. The thing about Riker too is that he's characterized as this again the cool ladies man in space. And don't get me wrong, Riker is cool. Riker's a really cool character, but not in the way that a lot of people assume. For one thing, he's not anti-authority. He is an authority on the ship. He's a very responsible authority. He's like the assistant manager who's constantly doing like employee evaluations and coordinating with all the like the department heads. And that's not a really exciting part of his job, but it is a part of his job. And he really seems to like that part. And uh, there's actually an episode that deals with how he was so devoted to authority at one point that he supported his captain above all reason really during a mutiny and how and the disaster that led to and the sort of character development that he's had since then that has allowed him to be able to stand up to his his former captain and again this is all really interesting nuances of his character that gets ignored when you railroad him into this pastiche and another thing is his relationships with women he gets with a lot of alien ladies but you can tell that he like genuinely likes and respects all of them he doesn't experience a lot of the disdain that you see in other examples of these character types towards the women that he's with. Even if it's just like a one night stand, he's really like, he's having fun. And he's having fun because he's with somebody that he genuinely likes and respects. And honestly, because uh, of the three episodes that I saw, A Matter of Honor, there's kind of a good demonstration of that when he's on the uh, Klingon ship. And apparently the Klingon women are hitting on him and he doesn't realize it until the Klingon men point it out. Uh, isn't, isn't Klingon women hitting on someone actual hitting him? Yeah, yeah, basically. They were, they were basically threatening to murder him. He doesn't realize it, but when the men pointed it out, he kind of looks at it, and he's like, I can respect this. And I'm like, thank you, Riker, for not being like a creep about it and not playing this for, oh, joke's on me. There is an episode where there is a, a woman who comes on board, who it later turns out is an assassin trying to kill somebody else, doesn't matter. But she is like the last survivor of her of her people. And as a result, she's been engineered to be this assassin survivor type dealy the instrument of vengeance what have you but she also really really likes Riker and Riker really really likes her and they're at a point where they're like uh you know kissing in his quarters and Riker kind of does the whole hey do you want to spend the night thing and she says I will do this with you but I you should know that I won't actually get anything out of it because apparently like her pleasure receptors have been turned off or something it's really weird, but the point is, is this is a great moment for Riker's character because like, he's like, well, if you're not going to be into it, then I'm not going to do it. So, like, if, if I'm the only one getting anything out of this, then what's the point? That's awesome. In multiple episodes, he talks about how what he likes about women is when they talk back to him, when he can have a conversation with them, with, when there's somebody that he can like relate to and engage on an equal level. 
And that's sort of why he's so constantly drawn to Deanna, despite the fact that the writers never really know what to do with Deanna. Like he, he's had this longstanding thing with Deanna before the show started. And when they started serving on the same ship, they were like, let's not do this whole couple thing. This could get awkward. So that frees Riker up to have the romance plots and Deanna to have the really bad romance plots. And one of these really bad romance plots is with this guy who goes up to Riker and says, how, how do you feel about the fact that I stole your woman? And Riker's like, okay, A, she's not my woman. And B, whatever makes Deanna happy makes me happy. And C, if you hurt her, I will murder you and they will never find the body. <gasps> yeah, I'm into that. And, and they continue to have this really good relationship, even though they're exes and they still like genuinely enjoy each other's company and have fun and are able to work together. And in season seven, Deanna has a little bit of a romance plot with Worf that goes nowhere. And that's when Riker sort of comes to terms with the fact that I always assumed we'd get back together someday, but it looks like we won't. But that's, he doesn't like lash out at Deanna for that. He doesn't lash out at Worf for that. It's just like something that he decides he has to deal with himself. And then in the movies, they get together and get married. So that's a whole moot point. Yeah, I remember the movies at this point a little better than I do a lot of the, uh, a lot of the later seasons. So uh, I did not know they didn't get back together. Yeah, they didn't get back together in the, sh- like the entirety of the show. They had a couple of episodes where like, there was one where they kissed and then they had to deal with Deanna's mother. Oh, I've seen Deanna's mother. She's come to visit on Deep Space Nine. Yeah, their whole relationship during um, during all seven seasons of TNG, it's more like amicably divorced than anything else. Huh. I like that. And then they got together in the movies and got married and it was kind of rushed, but I, I appreciate that they had a lot of stuff they felt they needed to wrap up. They got together again in Insurrection and they got married in Nemesis. And then Nemesis happened, but we don't talk about Nemesis. So one of the things that you have kept sort of talking about and the language you've kept using while you've been talking about Riker Kit is that he was a character created for sort of the housewives, also sort of an action character, but definitely created with sort of the housewife Kirk fans in mind. And that seems to me like that sort of mixes with my statement that Solo very much comes across as a romantic character rather than like a lady killer type. So in this case, what the geek culture, like elevating these guys to sex god status is sort of taking a character that was intended to appeal to women and sort of appropriating that into a power fantasy or a sex fantasy that they have. Because, I mean, I would definitely say that there are certain aspects of, of Riker and Han that are definitely like sex fantasies for, say, for, for straight women. They're the very handsome man who is very into you and in touch with you emotionally. And wants to woo you, even if it's a very sexually charged wooing. A very sexually charged wooing. I think that might be in my new ringtone. Let's kind of shift focus a little. Let's talk about how this archetype of these these Riker solo characters, how this tends to be kind of mishandled. We've gotten to that a little. As we've said, there's a power fantasy, sex fantasy sort of thing going on. And an example of the mishandling, uh, we'll see these guys getting a lot of women and just kind of discarding them and being rude to them and treating them like they're not another person, that they're just a sex object. Where where do you guys think that comes from? Because I feel like I see some of that in like noir. I see some of that in noir. That archetype shows up a lot in uh, in noir and a lot in uh, in action movies. Uh, if the character doesn't have a main love interest, if you really want to see a perfect example of the contrast, you just need to compare Star Trek: The Original Series, William Shatner, Captain Kirk, with Star Trek movie Chris Pine, Captain Kirk. They are essentially two different people. Because uh, Chris Pine tends to be like, oh right, I left you in my bed. I'm leaving versus Captain Kirk in the original, who was always a little bit more charming. He remembered everything about them, was respectful. 
Was he a little more like Rikery? Because I, I honestly haven't really seen. I've seen one episode of the original Star Trek, and it was the Pon Far episode. My dad watched a lot of the original Star Trek, so that's the one I remember more. Yeah, Kirk's relationships with women weren't quite as nuanced as Riker's were, if I recall correctly. But he still he didn't he didn't regard the women he was with as objects. Again, he's not a frat boy character. He's a well-read, smart strategist type. He's much more of a guile hero than I think a lot of people remember him being. He was a very clever character. Sorry, I know what you actually mean, but you said guile hero and I just started imagining the Street Fighter character. (sighs) And then I started thinking about Jean-Claude Van Damme and Street Fighter in the movie. And now I'm thinking about Raul Julia. I'm having a great day. These dollars will be worth 10 British pounds after I kidnap the Queen of England. Setting that aside for now. But yeah, they also, um, hack writers will try to write a Riker solo and they will create a character who unreasonably rejects authority for no good goddamn reason. They're just argumentative because nobody tells me what to do. They will have a character who does all the cool things in the movie, but without any nuance to their characters. They will have the Han Solo swooping in at the last minute to rescue people scenario, but they won't have any characterization behind it. There won't be any plot buildup to it. So it's just a thing that happens where this character is gone and then they reappear and you're supposed to cheer, but it falls flat. What's fascinating is that I've seen a recent move towards making these characters who definitely come across better as foils to the hero, as, as, as secondary characters, or at least like second characters. Started seeing a trend recently where these characters, they try to play them up as the only male leads when it seems like they function better as playing off of or supporting a, another lead. Yeah, it's the problem of making Jack Sparrow the lead instead of a secondary character. Exactly. And the problem is that Jack Sparrow's not an interesting character unless he has a straight man to bounce off of. He's an interesting foil, and he's got some kind of, you know, big painful backstory going on, whatever. But as a main character, he just seems like just chaos bouncing against the wall. We could talk more about the Pirates of the Caribbean movies at some point, too. I'm sure we could. God, those made no goddamn sense. God damn it. All sound and fury signifying nothing. But yeah, like I said earlier, we very frequently have a case of young guys who are into nerdy things, watching things like Star Wars and Star Trek, latching onto these characters who experience romantic success with women, but not fully understanding why they experience this success and just assuming that all these superficial character traits they have are the reason they're so popular with the ladies. And like, maybe they'll make them a little sexy, but mostly they're like strong and not like actual body that your typical heterosexual woman will find attractive in a man. Because, like, Jonathan Frakes and and Harrison Ford are both really good-looking men, but they are not the kind of guys who show up uh, in professional wrestling, for example. (laughs) Thanks, toxic masculinity. Really glad you could be here. It's kind of like how, when you're a teen, you think, obviously, Batman is the superior character between him and Superman, and as you get older, you suddenly appreciate, wait a minute, no, Superman's actually great. Yeah, Superman's a great character. The way pop culture is set up doesn't tend to value kindness the way it should. A kind character is considered a weak character, and an optimistic character is considered a weak character. Especially a character that is kind and optimistic towards uh, female characters who, by and large, especially in a lot of action franchises, tend to be objects slash sexy lamps, or they are simply characters that are tertiary. Or cannon fodder. I think we have a, we've been beating around the bush a little bit, we've got a pretty great example of this being mishandled, like, a lot in some films that have been very popular in the past couple of years. Oh, yeah. Let's start with the smaller one first, and then we'll get into the into the bigger one. And let me tell you, folks, these folks involve Chris Pratt. Oh, Chris Pratt. The, the really tragic part is that Chris Pratt is, like, the 
near as I could tell, he is one of the kindest, funniest, most wonderful teddy bear people on this godforsaken earth. And he keeps getting typecast into these terrible, terrible roles. He is an actual golden retriever. Yeah, he's a golden retriever and he keeps getting typecast as this. So, Guardians of the Galaxy. Don't get me wrong. Love this movie. Lots of fun. And it's honestly the first 10 minutes which are kind of where this happens. It's like within our first 15 minutes, we're not even into like the meat of Act 1 at this point. This is all establishing Peter Quill as a character. I was actually discussing this with someone the other day because it's like uh, they had two scripts and they just for some reason left 10 minutes of this script in it. It does feel that way. The original screenwriter for Guardians of the Galaxy was a woman named Nicole Perman. And then the screenplay underwent some rewrites when James Gunn came onto the project. And so it sort of looks like there was a pre-existing framework here. And then James Gunn decided to shoehorn in this haha Peter Quill so successful with the ladies bit in the front. I don't know that that's what actually happened, but... It does feel weird. There's, like, no mention of this. So here's the thing. Peter Quill, like, gets back to a ship, and there's a sexy alien lady in there. And she's like, Peter, what are you doing? And she's fallen out. And he's like, oh, you're still here. I thought you'd left. And honestly, it's kind of the same thing that happens in the beginning of the new Star Trek with What's-His-Face in it, where they kind of arrive, and the lady's still there, and they're both shocked and trying to kick them out and treating them like they don't matter. And forgetting the girl's name. Let's be straight here. The problem isn't that he has sexual encounters with alien women. The problem isn't that these women choose to have sexual encounters with him. Have all the sexual encounters you'd like. The problem is that he did not care about her welfare the next morning. He dismisses her. He didn't know her name. Yeah, didn't know her name. Says, maybe, do you want me to make you some breakfast? At least make your one night stand, your strangers in the night thing, that this stuff happens, it's fine. But you gotta at least show respect to the person that has chosen to spend this night with you. I remember somebody on Tumblr saying that the scene would have been so much better if instead of Chris Pratt being, I don't remember the character's name half the time, so I just call him by the actor's name. Instead of Chris Pratt being like, oh, you're still here? I forgot you were here. Also, I don't remember your name. It should have been a scene where he's like, why are you still here? You told me you had to leave in the morning. And she was like, oh God, my alarm didn't go off. And then they stare at each other for an awkward moment because neither of them remember the other's name. Yeah, that would have made it a ton better. <laughs> That'd be so much better. You wouldn't even have to like change much about it. Yeah, and that would have completely changed the tone of it. Yeah, with a couple changes in dialogue, you put them on an equal level. Oh, that's good. The rest of Peter Quill's characterization in the movie is a lot more, he's a lot more emotionally intelligent throughout the rest of it. In fact, you can tell that he spent a lot of the time on that alien ship, basically stopping fights from breaking out and being the peacemaker. And you can see that in his interactions with the other Guardians. Yeah, the Peter Quill in that scene seems completely divorced from the Peter Quill in the rest of the freaking movie. And it, it it's jarring almost. That there's this weird little stain on this character in the very beginning. This is not Chris Pratt's fault. This was a fault of writing, definitely. As noted, he is a golden retriever. We're calling the character Chris Pratt, but we don't think this is this is Chris Pratt's fault. So that's that's sort of our small example. Let's talk about the dinosaur in the room. Jurassic World. Jurassic fucking world. <laughs> I went to see Jurassic World right on the tail end of having seen Mad Max Fury Road, and there could not be two movies that are more different. And meanwhile, I hadn't seen it until uh, we decided we were doing this, Yuffie, and Kit and Annie told me to watch it. And at first I was like, I don't know what they're talking about. He's not that bad. And then he met Business Lady, and it was all downhill. As soon as you put him in the same room as a woman, it's just, uh, 
So, like, I, I, I have to be very careful here because I could go on for at least an hour about all of the ways in which I feel like Jurassic World has failed me. Owen slash Chris Pratt, where do we start with this guy? He's... I want to start with the fact that I never remember that his name is Owen. Owen just doesn't seem like an action hero name. Sorry, Owens. Well, let's start with some of the first lines that he says to her. Oh, God. Okay. She walks in. Um, she's trying to get his help. They, they exchange greetings, and she goes, by the way, uh, so I need your help with something. We have an attraction. And his immediate response is, that's not what you said a few weeks ago. And that's douchey. The 17 screenwriters involved with this movie decided that they needed to shoehorn in some pointless sexual tension. Also, during this entire scene, Chris Pratt is fixing a motorcycle, because if you introduce a motorcycle in the first act, you must ride it with a bunch of velociraptors in the third act. That's Pratt's motorcycle. That's a new rule. You want to consult here or in my bungalow? Ah! Oh. Oh. Like, this character is introduced to us with, with the velociraptors, so, I mean... Setting aside the implications that this character is metaphorically and constantly struggling to be in a position of power over other females. Females. Sorry, when I say females, I, I when anyone says females, I then hear Quark, uh, the Frankie from Deep Space Nine saying it. Females. Yeah, pro tip, everybody who says females is a noun, you sound like a Ferengi. Like, setting aside these, these implications that Chris Pratt's role is to have dominance over other female characters, setting all of that uncomfortable crap aside, we first meet him when he is just sort of, like, talking about his deep and abiding connection with the raptors and blah blah blah, and how he sort of cares for other people's lives, but not really, because it's, it's not cool to care. Caring is for nerds. Nerds. Caring's for Han Solo. Caring's for Riker. Those nerds. And then we have this whole plot with him, like, first off, Claire comes to him because you need to, like, consult on this attraction we have for the Indominus Rex dinosaur that we made. Because nobody was around to tell us that was a bad idea. We have no zoologists or anyone who's ever built an animal preserve on staff. And the whole conversation is him talking down to her. Yeah, is is her asking him questions and advice and him kind of being condescending and or sleazy sexual. He is that for the rest of the fucking movie. He's a complete dick. I don't know how this movie made Chris Pratt unlikable, but they pulled it off. I don't know how you- he's adorable! He's one of the most likable people in the world and they managed to make him insufferable. Look at his little smile! He's excited to be here! He was so happy to be in the dinosaur movie! He gonna be the dinosaur guy! And then they make him into an asshole. Just a complete douche hat. It seems so much like he is supposed to be the Riker solo character. The people who wrote the screenplay for this movie had a great big chart. And they had a great big formula of everything that the executives decided this movie needed to have. And they decided that this movie needed to have an uptight business lady, uh, who is nonetheless really, really hot. And this movie needed to have a couple of kids, although not a little girl, because little girls are boring, clearly. Little girls don't like dinosaurs. What are you talking about? Somebody in the office decided little girls don't like dinosaurs. There's no little girls in this movie. And they decided that they needed to have a, a rebellious sort of Sam Neill character, only they're going to take it to the nth degree. And also he's not a paleontologist. He's an ex-army guy who's just really good with raptors because he is the ultimate alpha male. 
You know that cool bit in Jurassic Park where Jeff Goldblum says, your scientists spent so much time thinking about whether or not they could, they didn't stop to think about whether or not they should. It's as if they took that line and decided that it was based not out of chaos theory or, or hubris, but against, like, folksy know-how wisdom. And then they said, let's make that a character. The fact that I saw this at the tail end of my third screening of Fury Road sort of demonstrated to me how much extraneous crap Jurassic World had in it. It didn't need to have all this weird sexist stuff about how Claire would eventually become a mother and warm up to children. This was just genetic destiny or whatever. It didn't need that. In fact, the movie would probably have been a lot better if it just skimmed out all the extraneous, like, hackneyed, shoehorned and emotional plots and just had dinosaurs eating people and embraced that. Those dinosaur fights at the end were so cool. If that had been the whole movie, I would have been happy. They were so cool, but then I had to sit through two hours of shitty characters to get there. And I don't know if it was worth it, but the raptor jumped on top of the T-Rex. It was really cool. Wow, spoilers. Also, can we talk about that creepy teenage boy who thinks that you flirt with girls by staring at them without blinking? Oh my god, that kid. Why is that kid in the movie? Also, it was kind of like he was like mini Chris Pratt in the film because it starts out with his girlfriend telling him I love him. He's like, yeah, bye, and leaves as quickly as possible. Like, he doesn't even remember she exists, even though he's going away for only a week. And admittedly, that was kind of clingy, but that's on the writers for writing that in the first place. Plus, they're teenagers. Teenagers are clingy. Can we also, like, talk about the fact that his entire emotional arc was like, don't ogle the girls, care about your brother who may or may not be coded as autistic? I, st I keep thinking about how much better the movie would have been if it was like a teenage girl and her little sister. The moral of the story here is add more girls to everything. Then you can be Fury Road and win so many Oscars. You can win all the Oscars. You can be a genre film winning Oscars. Genre film, a thing the Academy despises. God, how great was Jenny B even going up to accept that Oscar in that leather jacket? Oh my god. Oh my god. Her statements afterward is like, I don't actually give a shit. I love her so much. Chris Pratt, you have so much money. Why do you keep letting people tell you to be a douche? Somebody keeps giving Chris Pratt really bad advice. Really, really. Oh, honey, no. So I think we've sort of we've sort of come around to what we're sort of talking about here. It's this is that when this Jurassic World character is just he is not he is this mishandling. He doesn't like feelings. He doesn't respect the female characters that he deals with. Nor does he respect the emotional states of children. Nor does he respect authority, despite the reason that he has no reason not to. I mean, he was in the army. He is not the Riker Solo. He was written to be, but he doesn't fit. And this is just a prime example of this, this mishandled archetype that we keep seeing. We keep seeing this guy over and over again. Women want him, men want to be him. Yeah, this isn't the guy women want. And it lacks nuance. It says women want this guy without ever actually demonstrating why women actually want this guy. It's like they never asked the question, why would women want this guy? Aside from like, well, he took a shirt off and well, that's not, that's a start. I'm not going to say that's not good. That's start. But maybe actually like make me not feel disgusting for thinking that that was a pretty nice moment there. I mean, it's one thing to look like Harrison Ford. It's another thing entirely to be Harrison Ford. Also, maybe consider grow a beard. Everything becomes more awesome when you have a beard. A except for Seattle hipster guys. Maybe... You know, your beards are nice, but maybe like, I, I, I'm starting to have trouble telling you guys apart. And I suppose this is also, this also feeds into a general misconception uh, in media between what heterosexual male executives think straight women are into and what straight women are actually into. It's power fantasy versus sex fantasy. 
It's a main thing that you gotta pay attention to, especially in visual media lately. And like, hell, I'm a gay woman and I have a better grasp of what straight women are into than these people. And that's the thing, is that straight women are primarily attracted to men who are non-threatening. <laughs> and who are emotionally intelligent and also kind of good looking, but not in this, you know, hulking muscle bound kind of way. Let me let me tell you about uh LL Bean boyfriend. <laughs> I love LL Bean boyfriend. <laughs> Your LL Bean boyfriend is a Tumblr that just takes pictures of men in LL Bean websites and catalogs. Rugged, handsome men, and all of these are talking about how he's your boyfriend. They're pure, like, female fantasies. Like, we've got this rugged, good-looking man and this little line below it. While the wind howled outside, Mason and I got comfortable under the wool blanket and snuggled in front of the glow of the fireplace. Although it wasn't even seven o'clock, the heavy clouds and impending rainstorm made it look like it was much later. Mitchell and I rushed from the car onto the house. We're not going to get anything done tonight, Mitchell said. This is cuddle weather. I want to point out that if, if you're going to try and pick up women with these lines, people, dudes in our audience, or even gay women in our audience, don't. Do not. This kind of dialogue only works if you've been in a relationship for a while and you appreciate how corny the other one is. It's true. This entire, like, blog is this, is devoted to the, we've been in a relationship for a while, we probably lived together, and you made me a brand new deck. I'd been stressed out the whole week preparing for an important event at my job that I was in charge of planning. Finally, the night of, I was completely distracted as I frantically got ready. Mitchell calmly took my arm and paused me with a long kiss. It's going to be great, he said, with a grin. Aw, he's so supportive. And that's attractive. Very handsome men and very, in very good sweaters. This is basically the entirety of Tumblr's attraction to Chris Evans. Yes. Yes, it is. Especially Chris Evans in a beard, because that's like farmer's market hot. Oh, yeah, it is. I'd spent most of the morning working, so Gabriel came in to surprise me with hot apple cider and fresh, warm donuts from the bakery. I know you're busy, he said, but I wanted to make sure you remembered to take a break. This is the thing. It is a, it is a man who is emotionally sensitive, who understands your needs and wants, and is very handsome. Yeah, the handsome part is important. And I also think that a lot of guys, especially these days, don't don't realize that being handsome is actually pretty achievable. You just need a little bit of grooming. And a little bit of confidence. You just gotta take care of yourself, maybe get, you know, some clothes that fit you well, and just be confident about who you are. As a straight woman who is married to a gigantic weedy dork, it's attractive. I also want to point out, uh, we've... Been using the term straight women, but this also applies in terms of what women like, uh, women who are bisexual, pansexual, otherwise at least a little bit attracted to men. This also applies. We've just been using the term straight women for the sake of simplicity. We're not trying to actively exclude anyone, though it is certainly true that market speak will not act as though uh, bisexual and pansexual uh, women exist at all. Or even gay women. Like, you will often hear about the female gays without acknowledging the straight female gays versus the not-straight female gays. The Riker solo is just, it is so marvelously misunderstood. And it is a perfect example of something that is is designed from the ground up, at least it seems that way, to appeal to women. But for some reason, men will latch on to it in a way that is not reflective of what the actual character type is. So... You've listened to us talk about our Stone Cold Fact of the Week, but let's see if we have anything else. Kit, what are your Stone Cold Facts? My Stone Cold Fact of the Week is that I'm gay. I'm not blind. How about you, Mac? What's your Stone Cold Fact? Uh, Harrison Ford is dreamy with his smolder. Uh... I think he stole Annie's fact there. I, I think he did. I gotta think of a new one now. 
My stone cold fact is Chris Pratt keeps getting really bad career advice. You have so much money, honey. You have clout now. You don't have to be a jerk on film. So in summary, folks, this has been our stone cold fact that Will Riker and Han Solo represent the most misunderstood character archetypes in the history of fiction. Join us next time when our stone cold fact is the world is not ready for a Dragon Riders of Pern movie. It really isn't. So until then, dear listeners, I'm Annie. I'm Kit. And I'm Mech. And we have fought you.